today on City Cash Chicago. From No Name and Chance the Rapper to Bashir and Sultan Salahuddin of the show Southside, today's great creatives owe so much to Chicago's rich history of black artists. I mean, we brought the world Ebony and Jet and Soul Train. A new book explores the success of 60s, 70s, and 80s black Chicago and their effect on today's artists. We talk to the author. It's Wednesday, January 12th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. Ayana Contreras' love and deep knowledge of soul music, style, and ephemera of past decades is the history that informed her book, Energy Never Dies, Afro-Optimism and Creativity in Chicago. Ayana is also a badass DJ and host of the music show Reclaim Soul on WBEZ and Vocalo. I want to start with this title, right, before we dig into the content, Afro-Optimism and Creativity in Chicago. Again, the full title, Energy Never Dies. I want to take both of those uh, like kind of piece by piece. First, the first half, energy never dies. When did this come into your mind? So, I mean, it's been sort of a phrase that obviously I didn't create it. It's been out here right. in these streets for a long time. But <laughs> my grandmother, um, years back, I was working on the book and actually wrapping it up. And she had us uh, seated at her kitchen table in West Chesterfield, you know, south end of Chatham. And she told the family that she had stage four cancer and everybody was flipping out, you know, really upset. And finally, somebody in my family looks at my grandmother and she's like, why aren't you all more upset? This is horrible, blah, blah, blah. And my grandmother said, well, you know, energy never dies. And then immediately I was like, that's the title of the book, because the book had all these themes before I named it. Yeah. But it really... It was such a comfort to me. It really, like, also just really crystallized everything I believed in about the culture and what we're capable of and where it comes from and where it's going. This idea of Afro-optimism, can you give me a, a definition of Afro-optimism and how that is in contrast to Afro-pessimism, which more people might be aware of? Which is wild, right? Right. Okay, so like Afro-pessimists, let's start with Afro-pessimists because there are a lot of folks who are not familiar with this term mm -hmm. and I'm going to school them today. So Afro-pessimism is the concept that black people, um, people of the diaspora specifically, are um, doomed by the fact of their blackness. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you have to sit with that. Like, the, you are doomed by the fact of your blackness. And so Afro-optimism, in my definition of it, is the opposite, meaning that something bigger and better is possible for us as black people, as a fact of our blackness. For some Afro-pessimists, it is about acknowledging this sort of born into doom state as a way of tearing it down. And some of the examples that you bring forth, that the success in those stories are the success based on a sort of racial capitalism that the success still exists inside the parameters of the economics and the culture of a Western society. So the Afro-pessimist would say is that even for your success stories, those are success stories that are defined by whiteness. Are they defined by whiteness or are they built within the parameters of whiteness, which is two separate things, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, okay, 
I'm going to I see that there is this this market for black hair care products. We need these black hair care products. And L'Oreal doesn't know what they're doing. Right. Ergo, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to employ people in my community. I'm going to do this thing and it's going to be very successful and we're going to make money. Is that success? I think so. Mm -hmm. I think is that like self-determination? I say so. Um, Is there something about this current movement that made it extra important to write this book right now? I think, honestly, you know, the the term Afro-pessimism makes me so, like, angry that I felt like I needed to just sort of, like, put some words on paper about my feelings around that. Um, so there was that. There was that reason. And there was also sort of, I feel like we tend to tell a strange revisionist story about Chicago when we talk about Chicago, even the history of it. And it's like we're skipping so much. And I don't think that any of it is wrong, but I don't think separating it out and just focusing on just the politics or focusing on just the South Side or focusing on just this aspect of it is really like a true survey of what it is that we've accomplished in this many years. And I was trying to talk about that and talk about that even romanticizing that 60s, 70s era um, without understanding how important it is, like when we're looking at through that lens of what we're doing right now, is not true to that story either. Mm-hmm. The whole point of the black arts movement is to create a black arts sort of aesthetic that is speaking to the people. Right. And I just felt like that book wasn't here in the completeness Mm -hmm. that it could be. Like for the people. I just got to keep saying for the people, because (laughs) this is an this is a book through the academic press, but it's strictly written so that the aunties in them have something to read, that they can do a little book club and eat a pie, you know, from Aunt Patty and talk about it and feel affirmed in it. I want to know a little bit more about your Chicago history. You know, what got you into the music scene and into looking into this history? So, you know, I grew up in the 80s, like really squarely in the 80s. Um, And so my mom worked at a record store that Frankie Knuckles and them were at. And I remember as a small child being at that record store and watching them. uh, They had two turntables. And so the DJs would go up and practice and, and check out the new records and test them out and do all that good stuff. And so like, and, you know, I have memories of people cutting tape in the basement making edits like that was like life for me is a small thing and so like I you know I knew that the culture was a thing like a living thing but then like in the 90s people were throwing records out like so in the alleys you could just drive along and stack of records and it it struck me as weird because it's like I know that this culture is a thing and people have cared about these records and so I would just was coming up on these records, (laughs) right? I was like, not to think that I thought that it would be valuable again, but it was just like, it must have taken some time. It was about the collection. Yeah, it was about the collection and understanding the value of the collection. Mm -hmm. And so right around that time, I had a friend who owned a record store and I was going through these records and I realized a lot of these records that I was really attracted to from like 70s soul and jazz and stuff were actually from Chicago. And not only were they from Chicago, that 
likely, this is only the 90s, right? By this point, the late 90s. A lot of these folks probably still out here, mm-hmm. you know, and I said, I'm going to try and find some of them, you know, and so I realized that a lot of these folks were in conversation saying the same things, mm-hmm. feeling as though they're part of this this trajectory of what it is to be a black Chicago creative person, you know, yeah. and so that was the story that for me, that was always the story that I was interested in telling. One thing that I loved as I watched interviews and listened to interviews with you is just this idea of a DJ as an archivist. And that that is so obvious in what a DJ does, you know, this collection of, of a history, this ability to put different songs in conversation with songs potentially from different eras or other genres. You know, how did your work in radio, in music, um, kind of set the groundwork for this work, which is, you know, so much more than the musical history of Chicago, uh, but looks across sort of the black Chicago landscape. You're talking advertisement, business, music, and, and so forth. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think as a DJ, you are often putting things in conversation with other things. And that is really like the gist of what you're doing in order to really understand Minnie Ripperton and Earth, Wind and Fire and the place. Mm-hmm. You have to understand the place that created those things. Yep. And what was going on in the culture, in the community during that moment. And then you really understand not just these two things better, but how they're actually interconnected. Mm -hmm. What's so great is not only as you move through this book, do you get some amazing stories? Are these connections made for you? But even in moments, you know, you get playlists, get on up by the Esquires. The Sly Slick and the Wicked, Old Girl, Love Jones, Best of My Love. Like you, you, you get putting people on game too as well, you know, giving them a, a musical palette to take in with this book as well. Is that the ultimate foundation of this book, your love for music and music history? It's actually not, which is so funny. Like, I think, you know, my entry into the conversation, you know, people knowing of me is through music. But I'm actually so much more interested in sort of the stories behind the music than I am in the actual music. I mean, I, you know, I, whatever, it's great. But I'm more interested in the lady who helped us, like, clean up our backyard, who said she was in The Lost Generation for five minutes, but then they dropped her when they went to record the record. Like, I'm much more interested in that story. <laughs> we'll be right back. Are you self-conscious about your smile? Do you only allow yourself a closed mouth grin? Well, with Aligner Experts, there's no reason for you to diminish your smile. As orthodontists, they have the privilege of witnessing the remarkable transformation of patient smiles, which often translates into a profound boost in their confidence. Yet, there always seems to be a deterrent. I ain't got the time, I don't have the funds. Luckily, Aligner Experts is redefining convenient and accessible clear aligner solutions. With customizable treatments, transparent pricing, and their cutting edge 3D scanners and dental monitoring technology, you could transform your smile through the convenience of your own schedule. Stop in at their West Loop or Lakeview Clinic today for your complimentary smile assessment. Aligner Experts, your destination for advanced clear aligner solutions. P.S. They got another clinic on the way, so stay tuned for their Old Town location. 
you know, as you move through your essays, there are so many stories of of Chicago born black success from business to music to TV. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the big ones you hit, you know, is is Ebony and Jet. Uh, can right. you t- talk a little bit about the story of them? Because, I mean, my whole childhood is trying to make sure I put back my grandmother's Ebony and Jets in the Ziploc bags I found them in. Right. So I think ultimately Ebony Jet is probably the incredible example of it. But it's more than just these people got rich. Like, that's not the point of the story. Mm-hmm. And very seldom in these stories am I actually articulating that aspect of success. What I'm actually m- more interested in is what that success actually meant to other people. You know, you have this magazine that is, in fact, for many years, Ebony and Jet and the whole, all the publications were basically the publications of record for the black community in the United States and abroad in a lot of ways, too. There was a lot of coverage. Um, but beyond that, you people who just lived in the city of Chicago, they would look at that building as being the only uh, building owned by black people that was had a black architect in the entire downtown of Chicago. You know what I'm saying? And they had open tours and you walk in that space and it's full of beautiful black art and the most like beautiful, like 70s modern architecture, gorgeousness. Despite the building changing, the legacy changing, you know, how much of when you think of Chicago, do you think Ebony and Jet? You know, how much does that cultural relevance still exist now that the offices have become a university, then condos and pretty much everything else has gone online? I'm going to be honest with you. You know, either you could believe the hype. And by you, I mean folks out here in these streets can believe the hype that Chicago is about violence and lawlessness and, you know, desperation. But so much of what we have put of ourselves out in the world Mm -hmm. is about larger than life, self-determination, just like. Afro sheen, just like guiding Earth, wind, light. fire. Like, what can we do to come up? And here we are. Like, the here we are part of it is probably the biggest takeaway. All the way back to the defender, and even further back, it's like the here we are, and this is who we are on our terms. Mm-hmm. Another one of those here we are moments, and that motherfucker broadcasted into my house was so train. The hippest trip in America. 60 non-stop minutes across the tracks of your mind into the exciting world of soul with guest stars, the Isley Brothers and the Soul Train Gang. Could Soul Train have been started anywhere else? You know, what is it about Chicago that made something as cool and as groundbreaking at the time? Right. So obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but there have been a lot of soul music shows, mm-hmm. right? Even before Soul Train. But what it was, was the first one that had a sort of cross-sectional buy-in from, you know, Afro Sheen, right? Like, which was based in Chicago. They were going to fund it. You had the um, Vince Colors and and Burrell and the advertising firms that were going to create this, like, indelible thing that was also going to— I mean, how, how many times has a TV show had a situation where the ads were as memorable as the, mm-hmm. the show itself? Plus, of course, you know, when they started out, they had, you know, the intellectual property of young black kids who were c- coming up with incredible dances. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I mean, once t- they moved to L.A., it was a kind of a different bag, but it was still important. I mean, one of the things I really love about this book is 
is one, as you mentioned in it, you know, obviously black folks are not a monolith. And you recognize that in Chicago, what black culture is, is ever changing and moving and transforming and looks different on the South side and the West side at times, even though there is still an interconnectedness there that flourishes. But you also mentioned we're at a period now where more artists are staying, more people mm-hmm. are staying and creating black space um, for artists. Can, can you kind of tell me about that? Like how we've not only had a, a witnessed a downturn, but are, are now in a place of rejuvenating. I'm going to be real. Like, if this whole COVID thing hadn't happened, the Omarion, as they call it, if it hadn't happened, right, I can't even imagine what would have happened, you know, because things were, and not to say the things disappeared, they didn't disappear, but a lot of the in real life space making, place making has slowed. Yeah. But previous to that, what I would say is, um, there's a point in the book where the artist Theaster Gates, he tells me that the thing about Chicago that made his practice possible is that there's a lot of space, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of vacancy. And in that space, it creates opportunity. Like, that's one way of looking at it, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's exactly right. Like, we don't have, in the hood, we don't have a real hot real estate market. So you can get a storefront, you and like 10 people, and make a thing. You can do it. It's possible. This is true. I mean, the number of small open mics, the number of small theater productions, the the different events that people have put on. I've seen people, you know, folks like Trap House Chicago, like benefit from using these vacant space to create cultural space. Right, right, exactly. One last question for you, you know, we are in a, a very interesting moment in Chicago's history, right? I'd like to think we are the epicenter of, of young black activism. More shows and movies are being made here. Our, uh, our, our musical prowess is only, you know, uh, being rediscovered, but also is, is at all times a product of our history, given the country things like blues and, and jazz and gospel. Um, What's your hope for Chicago's black cultural landscape moving uh, into this like next generation? I mean, the number one thing is that I hope that people um, like the trickle down that I want to see is that when they see these people come up, it gives them hope for their own lives. That's the thing I want to see. Like I'm always, you know, I'm always excited to talk about people like No Name or people like Chance or you know, any number of the folks that, you know, the folks who created Southside, right? Like the program, like all those things. Like I want to talk about those people, but I'm much more excited about the girl who's sitting down at like, you know, the bus stop right now and sees the ad for Southside. It's like, dang, that happened here. And Mm -hmm. their day is a little bit better because of that. I mean, it sounds like silly, but it's not a silly thing. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing, and it really impacts people's lives positively. Like, I saw somebody on Facebook, which tells you that's the audience, but I saw somebody on Facebook put a screenshot up of Jeopardy because, one of like, Chicago was the answer to one of the questions. They're like, look, we made it on Jeopardy. They had nothing to do with the question. The question was about the defender, but the answer was Chicago. And so they felt like that was them. Ayana, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you this afternoon about Energy Never Dies, Afro-Optimism, and Creativity in Chicago. Uh, It's been a true pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
You can catch Ayana January 29th talking about her book and signing copies at the Woodson Regional Library on 95th and Halsted. I'll drop a link for you in the show notes. Before I let you go, you know I got a little bit of news, y'all. Chicago is still averaging nearly 4,800 daily cases of COVID-19, a slight improvement over last week. Now, Dr. R. Woody wouldn't say if Chicago has reached its Omicron peak just yet. Side note, the mayor has COVID, too. Luckily, her staff has been working remote since the start of the year, but I'm worried about all the rest of the people at them press conferences. Students and teachers are back in the classroom today after a week-long pause on learning. Workers at the Art Institute of Chicago have officially voted to unionize. There's some good news to get you through. Comedian and my homie Lisa Beasley is hosting a teacher's appreciation comedy show at 8 p.m. tonight at the Laugh Factory. If you can't make it in person, it's also virtual. And if you're a CPS teacher, there are some free tickets left for you. I can't confirm, but I got a good feeling that a certain Lori going to be in attendance. For more Chicago stories and events, sign up for our daily newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm. Remember, let your friends, family, co-workers, the people sitting in the waiting room with you right now at the testing center, let them know about CityCast Chicago. We blowing up in 2022. Get on that bandwagon now. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. I was finding my mm-hmm when I heard myself mm-hmm at the same time that I did in the thing. I was like, man. And then I got so caught up by that that gorgeousness happened and I was I was feeling myself. Sorry. <laughs>